I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you're using the Bibles we provided for you, this on page 260. We're going to be in all 13 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now you've probably heard or used the phrase, kill them with kindness. It's a phrase that refers to pouring out kindness, bombarding someone with kindness in the hopes that you can win them over, win that person over who would have been unfavorable to you otherwise. Now, over the next month, our church is going to engage in one act of kindness after another, after another, after another. And it is not our intention to kill our community with kindness as so much as it is to serve our community with the kindness that God has put in our hearts. And the motivation here is really twofold. Number one, as we looked at last week, God has blessed his people to be a channel of blessing to others. And so we want to extend benevolence to others because God has done that with us. But then number two, as we engage in these deeds of kindness, it is our prayer that our service would make people curious and that it would make them thirsty for what we are displaying. See, we're going to have an opportunity to display the gospel as we engage in these acts of kindness. Now, if we're being honest, I'm sure all of us would agree that it's sometimes difficult to consistently engage in deeds of kindness, right? I mean, the natural bent of our hearts, it's so much easier for us to be self-focused rather than others-centered. And so how can we be equipped and motivated to engage in deeds of kindness, to take the position, the posture of a servant? And the answer is this. Get acquainted with the kindness of God. Get acquainted with the kindness of God. This is what 2 Samuel chapter 9 is going to unpack for us this morning. It is the intention of this passage. And so read with me, if you will, follow along as I read 2 Samuel chapter 9. It says this, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, 
came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should regard for, show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This short story that we've just read is going to teach us how that we can factor into God's big story of redemption through understanding His kindness and taking that kindness and then distributing it to others. And this is exactly what He is going to teach us here in this passage. Uh, the, the, main, the main idea, the main point of today's message is this, that we must reflect the kindness of God from gracious and generous hearts. The first truth that the text teaches us is this. When we reflect God's kindness, we will be gracious to the undeserving. When we reflect God's kindness, we will be gracious to the undeserving. You see, David was Israel's greatest king. And verse 1 tells us that this great king, King David, in his, the early days of his reign, says, is there still anyone left from the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? Now, what does this deal with Jonathan? Who is Jonathan? Jonathan was David's greatest friend. He was the son of King Saul, the rightful heir to the throne. And yet, David and Jonathan had this unusual relationship. And Jonathan even understood that David was God's man to be king. He was the one that was anointed by God because he was a man after God's own heart to ascend to the throne. And so Jonathan asked David to make this promise with him in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14. He, he, he asked David this, Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So from that time to this time in 2 Samuel chapter 9, Jonathan and King Saul have died in battle. David has ascended to 
the throne. And chapters 5 through 10 of 2 Samuel teach us how God is establishing David's kingdom. And it's no coincidence that in, in verses, I mean, excuse me, in chapters 8 and chapter 10, we have an account of David's military victories. And then sandwiched in between those two chapters, we have this account of David remembering his covenant with Jonathan. It's as if the writer is saying, David made this promise to Jonathan that when God cuts off all the enemies, that, that, that he would still show kindness to the house of Saul, to the house of Jonathan. And that is exactly what's happening here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David remembers his covenant. You almost get the sense that he is searching. He, he says, there's still anyone left that I might show kindness for Jonathan's sake. We find that David's men find this servant of Saul's house named Zeba. And that's when we pick up in, in verses 3 through 5 where Zeba says, yes, there is this son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. And he's crippled in both feet. See, Mephibosheth lived a difficult life. Before he entered preschool, his father had died. His grandfather, the king, had died in battle. 2 Samuel chapter 4 tells us that as the house of Saul was defeated in battle, they fled in haste, and the nurse of Jonathan's family picks up Mephibosheth and in her haste she drops him and causes him to be crippled in both feet. We might assume as we've read the story that as Mephibosheth is called to, to, to the throne of David that there would be an, an, an air of excitement, anticipation that maybe the king is going to bestow a blessing on him, but that is not what Mephibosheth would have expected. You see, the custom in that day was for whatever household that takes the throne would then make sure that they wipe out the previous household so that there would be no rival, no challenge to the throne. So for all Mephibosheth knows, he may be heading to his own execution. I mean, it's probable that he knew nothing of this covenant that J Jonathan and David had made so many years ago. And so you might imagine that as he comes and he bows before him, it says, verse 6 tells us that he fell on his face and paid homage to David. And he hears from the lips of the king, Mephibosheth. Do not fear. I'm going to restore the land of Saul to you. And I'm going to extend kindness to you in such a way that you would not even believe. I mean, can you see Mephibosheth? On his knees, he looks up to the king and he has to be stunned. Joyfully stunned at these words that he hears. We see this in verse 8. It says that he asked the question, what is your servant? That you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. 
See, in order for us to understand this passage rightly, we need to understand this idea of kindness. Verse 3 tells us that David says that he wanted to extend the kindness of God to Jonathan's house. See, David desired to reflect the character of God. This word kindness is one of the most important words in the, the scriptures, not just the Old Testament, in the scriptures for understanding who God is. It's the Hebrew word kesed. It means steadfast love. Some translations say loving kindness. Other times we'll find it translated simply like we have in chapter 9 as kindness. And many of you know that Marsha and I just named our newborn daughter Kessid. Why? Because we know something of the words of David in Psalm 63 when he says, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. The steadfast love of God is better than life. We could say we would rather have God's loving kindness than to have life itself. And the irony there is when we know the steadfast love of God, we have life, both in this life and in the life to come. Paul Tripp says that this word kesed is almost untranslatable. And what does he mean? He's, what he means by that is it's a word that's so deep with meaning that it's, it's difficult to find a word that, that would communicate all that it holds. Tripp says, I like this, he says that kesed is the showering of bounty that's a result of the love of the giver. The heart of the giver is filled with love, and because of that love, he showers it upon you. That is the kindness of God. The Bible has much to say about kindness. Think about what the Bible says about kindness. Love is patient and kind. Galatians 5, when Paul's unpacking what the fruit of the Spirit should look like in our life, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Sadly enough, I had never thought much about this attribute of God before we embarked on this journey to start Redemption Hill Church. Almost five and a half years ago, this, this prayer began in my heart that became our heart, my wife and I, Marcia, and became our heart. The Millers got on board, and then Abby prays about it. And she gets on board. The Chastines, a few years later, get on board. And, and, and so God has, step by step, each part of the journey has displayed his steadfast love to us. I mean, I just described to you, he brought a team together to come up here and start this church. He's provided for us financially. Let me just tell you a quick story. Four months before we leave for Boston, we're supposed to leave for Boston, we have $10,000 in the bank account, all right, to, to start this church. Now, you might understand, you know how expensive it is to live in Boston. It is very expensive to start a church in greater Boston. I mean, what on earth are we going to do? Pray and watch God open his hand and provide. He's provided a team, he's provided finances, he's provided people. Look at this room, two months in. People, there is a movement starting. I mean, I want to encourage you. You are in the midst of a work of God's kindness. 
So when God does something great in Redemption Hill Church, and as we get a foothold in our community and we make a difference, a positive difference in the lives of those around us, make no mistake, be sure to let people know that it is the kindness of God to us. There's nothing great about us. There's something very great about God. And he is distributing his kindness time and time again. The kindness of God is on display all throughout this parable. First, we see that God's kindness is gracious. I mean, as we examine this passage, it's safe to say that kindness involves extending benevolence to the undeserving. Think about Mephibosheth here. David's kindness is an act of total grace. What did Mephibosheth bring to the table? I mean, as we said, he could have been considered an enemy of David. Added to that, the, the, the writer here goes to great lengths to tell us of Mephibosheth's con condition. He says twice, he was crippled, he was lame in both feet. Of what use could Mephibosheth be to David, the king? But David extends grace. And Mephibosheth is a recipient of that grace. Grace can be understood as unmerited favor. It is bestowed upon the undeserving. And we should pause and we should reflect on the picture of the gospel that this puts forth right here. You see, the story of God's salvation is a story of grace. We will never see our need for grace until we see that we are crippled in both feet. We are spiritually lame in both feet apart from God's grace. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are spiritually dead. Trying to earn salvation by our own works is like trying to climb Mount Everest with two crippled feet. It can never be done. Never. Not in a million years. We could never earn our way to God's approval because of the great sin that's in our lives. But here's the good news. We don't have to. Why? Because Jesus has come down the mountain all the way to us, and he puts us on his back and carries us back up his mountain of grace. All we have to do is see our own inability that we can never save ourselves. See that our sin has separated us rightfully, justly from God. And see the great gift that God offers us in His Son through His sacrificial death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. That if we say yes to Him, we can have life and experience His grace. David showed gracious kindness. 
to Mephibosheth. But not only is the kindness of God full of grace, it is also full of generosity. This is what the second truth that I want us to see teaches us this morning. When we reflect God's kindness, we will be generous to the undeserving. See, this picture here of David's kindness is one of complete generosity. He is not simply graciously kind, he is generously kind to Mephibosheth. I mean, again, think about this. What does Mephibosheth have to bring to the table? He has no home of his own. He lives in the house of Machir, in a place far from Jerusalem. He has nothing to offer the king. And yet, those who know the kindness of God, like David here, display generosity because of the steadfast love that flows from their lives, not because of what they can receive in return. That's kindness. Look in verse 7, we see the generosity of David on display. It says, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And first, I will restore to you all the land of your father. And number two, you, you shall always eat at my table. So first he restores the land of Saul to Mephibosheth. I mean, this is an unbelievable material blessing. But before we get too excited about that, the main point of the, the passage here is not the material blessing that Mephibosheth experiences. It is the relational blessing that Mephibosheth experiences. See, the writer of 2 Samuel wants this to be in bold for us. There is a new relationship here now. Four different times in these 13 verses, it tells us that Mephibosheth would eat at David's table. Twice, from David's own lips, he says that Mephibosheth will eat at my table. This is good news. The kindness of God is intensely personal. David chooses Mephibosheth, and he desires for him to be there. I mean, his kindness is directed toward Mephibosheth personally, just as our kindness should be directed toward people from sincere hearts that really want the good of the other person. This is the difference between knowing we ought to engage in kindness and wanting to engage in kindness whether that's for our spouse or our roommate or for a stranger we've never met. The kindness of God is intensely personal, but, but then notice also three different times it says that Mephibosheth in verses 7 and 10 and 13, it says that he will always eat at the king's table. There is no limit to the kindness that David extends. No limit. This is the essence of chesed. Think about this. It reaches back. This is undying loyalty. It reaches back to the promise that he made in 1 Samuel chapter 20. 
to this point in Mephibosheth's life. And it doesn't only reaches back, but it reaches forward into the future. He will always eat at my table. This Kessid love is loyal and abiding love. And this is a beautiful picture of what it means to have access, relational access to someone that it is a privilege to know. You see, we, we know, think about your life, we know the privilege of access because we know the disappointment of relational rejection, right? I mean, we've, we've experienced this at, at some point in our life. We have all heard the words verbally or non-verbally, you don't belong here. This is for people more special, more intelligent, more cool, with more swagger than you. And those moments can be incredibly discouraging. But to have access, it's a great privilege. There's a story from my life when I was 10 years old, I had an opportunity to experience what it meant to have access. See, I grew up in Kentucky, and you might imagine as the son of a high school basketball coach, I love basketball. The Kentucky Wildcats were my favorite team. We are on our way back to the national championship, by the way. That's not the main point of the story. But 10 years old, I get to go to Rupp Arena to watch the Kentucky Wildcats play with a family friend named Eddie Ford. Now, because I got into the game with Eddie Ford, when we got in and you know, gave our tickets to you know, the usher, uh, we didn't go up to the cheap seats. We went down to the eighth row in the sideline beside UK's bench. After enjoying an awesome game, I got to sneak past all of the other common folk behind me, past the dudes in the you know, blue sport coats, and I was then escorted down the tunnel, back down a long hallway, and I'm standing in front of a door that says, Kentucky Basketball. Just a couple minutes later, there's a guy who peeks his head out the door, and he motions us in. And all of the sudden, I am in the presence of Coach Rick Pitino, and my childhood heroes, Travis Ford and Jamal Mashburn. I mean, I got to go around and shake the players' hands, get autographs signed. It was one of the best moments of my young life. I had complete access to my team. How was that? It was because I was in the house with one of the players' fathers. In a much more astounding sense, this was Mephibosheth's experience. He had perpetual access to a place that he did not belong. He always ate at the king's table. And what is more, verse 11 tells us that Mephibosheth ate at the David's table like one of the king's sons. He ate at the table like one of the king's sons. Can you imagine? Visitors come in to the, the royal 
banquet room, and they can't tell if Mephibosheth it belongs to David or not. Is he a son? Is he not a son? I mean, he, he looks like he is one of the sons because of this access granted to him. So when we reflect the kindness of God, we will extend both gracious and generous kindness to the undeserving. But before we close our time, there's one other truth that we must consider this morning. This chapter is pointing us forward in redemptive history to a man named Jesus Christ, who is the true and better king of kindness. Jesus Christ is the true and better king of kindness. Let's talk hermeneutics just for a moment, all right? That's a fancy word that gets at how we interpret the Bible, okay? Jesus says in John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. All right, so Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, Jesus is saying, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're all pointing to me. They're all speaking of me. Then in Luke 24, as he's having a conversation with his disciples, in verse 44, he says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is all of the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, the law of the prophets and the writings. Jesus is saying all of the Old Testament points to me. It is our understanding that the whole Bible is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. Jesus is the sum and substance of all of the scriptures. So when we see King David doing his thing in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he is a type, a shadow that is pointing to the greater reality who is King Jesus. I want to just look at a couple facets of the diamond that is the kingship of Christ. Number one, we see that Jesus is the true and better king because he is always true to his word. David made a promise to Jonathan, and he keeps that promise. For those of us who know Christ, isn't it good news for us that Jesus always keeps his promises? Do you know the promises of God? I will never leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1, 5. The steadfast love, there it is again. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 17. How about this familiar one? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, know him, and he will make straight your paths. It's a promise. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. 1 Peter 1. Did you get that? His divine power. God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's a promise that we can hang on to. And so Jesus is faithful to keep his word. He is the king of kindness and he is the king of grace.
the supremacy of the gospel teaches us this. That while we were once an enemy of God, Jesus gives us an opportunity to sit at his table, the table of the Lord. Revelation tells us that one day there will be uh, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And all who know God in Christ will be invited to sit at that table. But we don't just sit at the table like one of the king's sons. This is Mephibosheth's opportunity, golden opportunity. We don't just sit at the table like one of his sons. We sit at his table as his sons and daughters. God has adopted those who cling to Christ and find saving grace in him to be his children with all of the rights and privileges that belong to all of the children of God. So let me ask you, have you been adopted into the family of God? It's my prayer this morning that as we look into the mirror of our lives, that we would see a Mephibosheth staring right back at us. When we see that we are completely needy, completely helpless, spiritually laying in both feet apart from God's grace, that is when we are in a position to receive it. Titus 3, verses 4, I love, says, But when the goodness and loving kindness, there it is again, loving kindness of God our Savior appear, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Jesus Christ is the King of kindness. We have to know Him to experience this kindness from God, but not only that, His kindness must motivate us to be kind to others. It's through connecting with Jesus, knowing Jesus, depending on Jesus, that we are able and rightly motivated to extend kindness to others in need. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, remains in me, depends on me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we as a church, even as we engage in this month of hopefully radical service to our community, we will only be so powerful, we will only bear so much fruit as we abide in Christ, as we depend on him and find our strength from him. And so Redemption Hill, will we extend kindness to those around us? Will we have regard for the poor, the lame, the needy, the helpless, those who cannot further our agenda? Kindness is inherently others-focused. It takes the posture of a servant and takes a towel like our master and it says, how can I serve you? How can I help 
you? How can I help meet your needs? Whether that is family, friends, co-workers, or 150 kids and a little more than a week from now at soccer nights, when we take the posture of a servant and depend on God's kindness in our lives, we are in a position to distribute his kindness to all people. Micah 6, 8, we'll close with this, says this, He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. God, thank you for our time and your word this morning. And it is our simple prayer that we would, number one, know your kindness. That you have been unbelievably gracious and generous to us in your Son, and we know this now by your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone in here who may be wrestling with how can I know God, how can I have a relationship with God, that they would see that we can only relate to you by your grace. I pray that many here, if they need to, need, would say yes to your gracious love. And then, Father, if, we, if and when we know your love, help us to be ready to extend your kindness to people here in our community and to one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.